Things may be coming to a head in Great Britain. The Scottish Parliament has announced plans to hold a vote in the fall of 2014 on whether or not to secede from the rest of the UK. The dissatisfaction with policies of 30, 40 years, economic deprivation, all of these sort of things Mm. really have driven the demand for independence. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Friends from England, Wales and Scotland join us in the hour ahead to look at the pressures that may fracture what we still call the United Kingdom. It was only when Britain lost its empire and Scotland found oil in the North Sea that the cry for independence came back. While at the same time, living inside the European Union has made it easier than ever to overlook national borders within the EU. I've got this Scottish accent, but I've always felt like a European. We'll examine choices about where to call home from several European angles. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Being a resident of the European Union has made it a lot easier to make choices about where you live. We'll hear what it's like to relocate to a country with a different climate and even a different language later in the hour ahead today on Travel with Rick Steves. Political and economic pressures are making these interesting times in Europe, as well as for the rest of the world. And if you live in Great Britain, serious internal political issues are on the horizon. The central power in London has been slowly devolving as residents in Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland cultivate greater autonomy. But plans by the newly enhanced Scottish government to hold a referendum on complete independence from Britain have clouded the future of the UK. Joining us to discuss the issues propelling the potential fracturing of Britain are Roy Nichols, who lives in Dorset in the south of England, Anne Doig, who's from Edinburgh, Scotland, and Martin Delandovitz, who, despite his surname, is a Welshman through and through and lives in the north of Wales. Martin, Anne, and Roy, thank you for being here. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So first, a little terminology. Uh, Roy, when we say United Kingdom, what does that mean? United Kingdom really is synonymous with saying Britain. That There are slight differences between the two, but essentially they're the same thing. And it's the political entity that is made up of those four home countries. Which are? Wales, Scotland, England, uh, and Northern Ireland. So that is the United Kingdom. That's the United Kingdom. And then... Martin, what does Great Britain mean? Well, if you take away the six counties of Northern Ireland, okay. you're left with Wales, Scotland, and um, uh, England. That's that, that it. I keep on forgetting them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's our good friend Martin from Wales. So there is a difference between the UK and Great Britain. The United Kingdom is uh, with Northern Ireland, and Great Britain is just that island which happens to That's be right. England, Scotland, and Wales. But the, the quite common mistake is that people tend to refer to the English as being British, which mm-hmm. they are. But also remember the Welsh, the Scots, and the Northern Irish are also British. They're British. The Northern Irish are British. Yeah. Yes. People in the Republic of Ireland are They're not. not. Yeah. Now, when we say the British Isles, does that include Ireland? It does. I mean, that's actually a geographical description. As much so as... what is the name of the big island? Britain. 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 And then when it becomes political, it's, it's Great Britain. Oh, okay. His greatness is open to question these days, I must say, but there you go. Okay, we'll we'll discuss greatness in a minute because I, I am curious what puts the great into Britain. But when we hear the word devolution, what is that, Anne? Devolution is when the Westminster Parliament devolved powers to an assembly in Wales, Northern Ireland, and to Scotland. So in the past, a lot of power was held in London, and now they're giving back, back in a measured power. way, a little power to the Celtic capitals, That's right. wherever that may be. So we, we have this sort of basic terminology. Now, Martin, what is the difference between the Welsh and the Scottish relationship with London and and England. Do they have the same relationship? They don't have the same relationship. What happens in uh, 1707, and can correct me on this, that the uh, Scottish Parliament voted itself out of existence and unified with the Westminster Parliament. But what happened... Wales was always more fragmentary than Scotland. Scotland always had one king that was recognised as being the king, no matter how safe or unsafe he was. But Wales never had one king. It was described as a land of many kings... And so that Wales piecemeal was annexed to the English crown. So rather than the union that you had between ah, you England hear the and Scotland, union in terms of England yeah. and Scotland, but you don't hear union in terms of no. Wales. And no, England. it was more of a shotgun wedding than a union. And it is fair to say that Scotland and England are closer legally related than Wales and England. Well, in 1707, yes, it was a commercial and a political union. 
Wales had really been run from from London for a lot longer. You were annexed, but also, I mean, I would we were quite independent. So Scotland then. was operating with a, a little more a position of power yeah. to negotiate with London. Yes. Whereas the Welsh were just overrun by the. Yes. Yeah, you see, Wales was amalgamated; it was assimilated. Whereas Scotland maintains to this day its own legal system. Right. And in fact, it was a Scottish king that took over England rather than the reverse. You see. James now, the first. Now, how would Northern Ireland come into that equation? How how is that related to London compared to Scotland, for instance? Northern Ireland came into existence in 1921. Was it 22? Oh, that's right. That came that after the because it was all of Ireland until the Irish won their War of Independence, independence. and then they had a civil war following that immediately. Yeah. And the northern part decided to stay with Britain. Is that right, Roy? No, it's more complicated than that. The civil war in the south was actually between two factions that devolved into two different political factions today. Northern Ireland was the heartland of the Protestant, Ulster Protestants. And so it was decided to retain those six counties to avoid a really large civil war between the Protestant and the Catholics in Ireland. So until 1920s, Ireland was part of Great Britain. Indeed, yes. And then Irish won their independence, but there was a dominant Protestant... uh, Who wanted to stay in the Union. Stay with the Union. Because they were Protestant. But But do bear in mind that Ireland's parliament was only united with that of London in 1808. It was a very short lived thing, just over a century. Okay. Uh, and it, people forget that. They think it was annexed in, in the same way that Wales was. No, it was not. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, Ireland as part of Great Britain existed between 1808 okay. and 1921. So, historically, too. Ireland does have a lot more independence and struggle, I suppose, than, than Wales. Where, I mean, your struggle finished centuries ago, and since then you've been pretty much part of, part of the fold. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at the political entity called the United Kingdom and we're learning about internal issues that might soon change what it comprises. Our friends from Britain who are filling us in on the issues their country's facing are Martin Delandovitz from Wales, Roy Nichols from England, and Anne Doig from Scotland. And we'll include you in the conversation in just a bit by phone at 877-333-7425 or by email. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. I was just reading that there's a man named Sir Gus O'Donnell, a senior cabinet secretary, And he wrote that Westminster, the government in London, the British government, will face enormous challenges holding the union together in coming years. Mm. What is your take on that, Roy? Well, I think think it's a tide that sweeps right across Europe for people to have more control over their own lives. And I think there was frustration of those aspirations in the 1970s when the original idea of devolved government first came up. And there is strong demand in Scotland for a measure of independence. But whether it'll go to full-blown independence is a different issue. And let's talk about that, because you live in Scotland, you're Scottish, and you've got the party in power now is actually a secessionist party, is that right? That's right. It's the Scottish National Party. And my take on that is the reason that they came to power and got a majority. Very difficult to get a majority in the Scottish Parliament because there's a measure of proportional representation. So let's talk about that for a minute, because in America, we're sort of afraid of a third party with any power. So it's always two-party rule, Democrats or Republicans. But in Scotland, it would have to be a coalition because there's so many parties. Nobody would ever get a majority. That's right. That moderates things, I suppose, a little bit. But now, very unusually, you've got a flat-out majority by the secessionist party. That's right. Wow. And a lot of people voted, I, I believe, for the Scottish National Party. It was in rebellion because of the Liberal Democrats who went into coalition in Westminster yes, yes. and all their election promises they reneged on. And so people like myself, Liberal Democrats, protested. Plus, the Scottish National Party didn't mean to say that we want complete secession. They have delivered their promises. They've got a leader at the moment who's I don't personally like, but he's very charismatic, intelligent, and he's delivering on his promises. And so people thought he was doing well for Scotland. But I don't think it necessarily means they want the complete breakup. So this is my opinion. They're playing hardball here, talking about secession. Now, 1999 was devolution, right? When Mm -hmm. when London said, okay, Scotland can have its parliament. The first time Scotland had its parliament since 1707. 1707, And I think Tony Blair predicted that this would be the first step toward full independence. No, I don't agree with that. I think he's very much a unionist. Oh, really? But he he was made in Scotland. You know, he was born in Scotland, educated there. He thought it would stop the call for... Oh, so he thought that would placate people just to give them that. Yeah. But that was a miscall. Roy, what what was the mistake there, do you think? I I don't think there was a mistake. I think there is nothing wrong with aspirations of self-determination. 
And I think it's a good thing. I'm, I'm not a supporter of the breakup of the union, but at the same time, I'm a supporter of self-determination and measures of devolved government for everyone. And I think it should be applied to England as it should be to the other smaller areas of the United Kingdom. But, but, but this is something that you know I, I believe, Roy, but back in the 70s, there was a vote on devolution. And that vote was slightly rigged. The, the bar was set very high. And had there been good, proportionate, equal devolution between England, Wales, and Scotland, I'm, I'm including England in that, mm. because I think that if the Scottish have their parliament and Wales have their parliament, well, England should have its parliament too. And had that happened in the 70s and good powers were given to all parts of Great Britain, then we wouldn't be in this... Yeah, I, 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 I agree with Martin entirely. No, I think we'd have gone for more of a federal system rather than the uh, sort of devolved system that we have at the moment. Clarify what you mean by a federalist system. Not, not, not in, in, and perhaps that's a, a wrong expression to use, but what you would have had is more, uh, more self-determination in the 1970s. I agree with Martin. that the, In the 1970s? In the 1970s, that there was this question of devolved government then, and it was very unpalatable to the, the government at the time. And so they really rigged it. And so it really removed the ability to have devolved government away from Scotland, Wales, and to England. And does that come back in, in force to renege on that? And now when we have more serious issues of... Well, I, I think frustration has built up, particularly right. in Scotland, over decades of misspending by the government, misdirection by the governments. And I think Anne is quite right, is that what the SNP are doing at the moment is really answering uh, many of the frustrations felt by people throughout the United Kingdom mm. Um, caused by politicians who don't carry through their promises. SNP being Scottish Scottish Nationalist Nationalist Party. Party. And from Scotland, to what degree are the Scottish secessionists emboldened by the fact that Scotland has oil in the North Sea? They are emboldened by that. That was when the cry really started. It's Scotland's oil in the 60s, and that cry really led to this system of devolution. The problem is now they still believe it's Scotland's oil, but they think there's only about 20 years to go. and Still, it's a substantial amount a st- of economic power compared, power. To, compared to sheep in Wales. Yeah, but you know, I, look, I look at the Scottish oil and I think to myself, how long has oil got to go on a global scale? Right. Do you know what I mean? We can't just go on using it and using it and using it. But there's a lot of new technology looking into wave and wind power and Aberdeen's really yes, the yes. sort of energy capital of Europe. Yeah. And the whiskey industry contributes a lot. Yeah, yeah that uses industry. water too, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the economic arguments for independence are different from the social and political issues. Explain. Uh, well, in the sense that the economic issues will actually be a result of independence. You have to justify the fact that Scotland could be independent. You have to say that yes. it's possible. Yes. But they're not the issues, I think, behind the question of independence. It should be about social, political issues mm-hmm. rather than economic. That would seem to be a good uh, agreement between all the parties if you're going to move forward on these issues. We'll talk more about that in a moment. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the potential fracturing of the United Kingdom. We're joined by Martin Delandovitz from Wales, Anne Doig from Scotland, and Roy Nichols from England. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We
While it's certainly a serious subject to think about that Scotland and perhaps other components of what we still call the United Kingdom may vote to sever their ties with the government in London, there's also a bit of self-deprecating humor in a saying about her countrymen that Anne Doig shares with us. There's a little poem illustrates our humor, I, I guess, but the, it starts with, First you have the Welsh, who prey on their knees and on their neighbors. Then you have the Irish, who don't know what they want, but they'll fight you for it anyway. Then you have the Scots, who keep the Sabbath and everything else they can get their hands on. And then you have the English, who are a self-made race, which absolves Almighty God of a great deal of responsibility. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the future of the United Kingdom, or of Great Britain. We're joined by Roy Nichols from England, Anne Doig from Scotland, and Martin Delendovich from Wales. Is it an English empire, with England ruling and taking advantage of its Welsh and Scottish subjects? Martin? I would have to say no. If you look at Britain as an island, the southern bit's got the deepest soil, it's the driest bit, it can grow the most crops, it is the closest to Europe, it's always been the most wealthy part. I live in Wales, I love Wales. We've got small, thin sheep living on acid soil on high mountains. It rains just over twice, which is part of Britain's in my county. (laughs) Wales is a a marvellous country. If you live there, you want to live there. But economically, it isn't exactly the powerhouse that it once was. So So actually being with England is probably a blessing for Wales when you look at it. In the case of Wales, I'd say we could sell them water and we could sell them a beautiful sheep. And Welsh people are great, but we're a long way from everywhere. We haven't got great natural advantages. Our road infrastructure, really, it's it's a tough one, a tough one. Okay, so you don't mind freeloading on London? It's not so much freeloading on London. It's the idea that, I'm going to be honest with you, Rick, I think Great Britain is a bit of a family. We've all been part of a family. No more bitter a dispute than the family argument. But at the end of the day... You're still family. You're still family. This is the way I feel. Welshman, Martin, thank you very much. Scottish woman, Anne. Uh, Is England an empire and is Scotland just being a subject being taken advantage of? Well, not really. Because, you know, after the the Union in 1707, there were riots in the streets of Edinburgh. It was very unpopular. They put a tax on whiskey and beer. Now, you can imagine how the Scots felt about that. But eventually, because it was a union, we became like junior partners in a a big business empire that went all around the world. And Scots took full advantage of the British Empire. It was only when Britain lost its empire and Scotland found oil in the North Sea that the cry for independence came back. And it was also energised by Margaret Thatcher's policies because Scotland didn't vote for Margaret Thatcher's party. She destroyed our industrial base. She did in the north of England and Wales. Wales. So that that really clarifies it to me because when I go to Edinburgh, I see the grandeur of 19th century Britain and I think this is good. You were the junior partner of the empire upon which the sun never set. And Edinburgh was the intellectual capital, well recognized. And an industrial and and educational. And, And historically, Scotland always punched above its weight in all sorts of areas, politically, economically... Uh, in education sizes. And you always hear about uh, Scotland as being uh, champions in the British Army. Yes, it's a warrior tradition from the Highlands. So that was all fine and dandy as long as Britain was uh, was uh, ruling. And then when well, the British Empire falls apart... You, why you, you, should we be united? You've hit the nail on the head there. You, you, you think of any British town or city, London, Liverpool, Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Cardiff, beautiful centre of Cardiff, all 19th century. Where did the money come from? The British Empire. Now the British Empire is in decline. The money isn't coming in. Everybody's saying, oh, why should we be part of Britain? Where's the full employment gone? Mm. And everybody was quite happy to sing God bless the Prince of Wales while the slate mines were open, the coal mines were thriving, and the iron steel mills were turning. But no, today, oh dear, we've got no, well, we want to do something ourselves. Well, so Roy Nichols, you've got some fairly reasonable uh, friends here as part of your empire. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think uh, to a great extent it must reflect a general opinion throughout the United Kingdom. I, I think it is a difficult thing. I think the very fact that the political policies of 30, 40 years through, not just through Margaret Thatcher, but through other politicians, the dissatisfaction with policies, uh, mm-hmm. economic deprivation, all of these sort of things mm. really have driven the demand for independence. Uh, and, and it's not just in... Scotland and Ireland and, and Wales, I think there is measure of it to a certain extent in in parts of, well, throughout Europe, but parts of England as well. Yes, the north of England and Cornwall. 
So when we talk about devolution, it's just a, a nice way to say you can have certain bits of sovereignty, but not to violate the integrity of the of The, the, main, the, the main framework yeah. that makes yes. that political so, entity. So what sort of power can London give back to Wales and Scotland that has any value at all, and what is it reasonable for it to keep to make the concept of Great Britain survive, Anne? Well, at the moment, the powers in Edinburgh our education, transport, health. There's a lot of really big issues that are dealt with in Edinburgh. But the reserve powers, as they call it, in Westminster, is immigration, going to war, defence, social security, and the lottery and gambling for some reason. Ah, But you see, we actually need immigration, whereas the south of England doesn't. We were dead against the Iraq war, going to war. We've got no choice in that. So a lot of people think being independent within the EU, because we've seen the split up of other countries, with the natural resources, we've got a population like Norway, we've got a well-educated country, good universities, that it would be better to go off on on our own. So that's that. interesting. Current events could actually make it more clear oh, yes, to the Scottish people what they're missing. For instance, oh. if London wants to go to war, you got to go to war. Yes. If London says no more immigrants and you want immigrants up mm-hmm. in sparsely populated Scotland, you can't get any. So, Martin, when you listen to Scotland's idea of what powers they should have and what powers they can have and want and don't have, how does the Welsh sort of relationship to London pan out? We're not that far behind Scotland in the powers that the Welsh Assembly has. We're not that far. We're getting there. But, do you know, this is what I say. If you think of the reserve powers, if you think of military, if you think of foreign policy, it's very difficult to see how they would operate on a Scottish or a Welsh or an English basis, each independent of the other. I don't think that's too bad an arrangement. But at the same time, I think nobody digs your own garden as well as you do. You you take pride in your own garden. So those devolved powers make perfect sense. We look after our health. We look after our education. Scottish education is famous. It's Mm. excellent. There must be a nice balance that you could work out. And you could keep the good and uh, exercise the power that logically should reside in Cardiff or in Edinburgh. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the potential fracturing of the United Kingdom. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And on an issue related to monetary policy, we have Julie on the line in, in Glen Allen, Illinois. Julie, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. Do you have a comment on uh, what's going on in England and in Britain? I do. And I'll just say that when I was there, the European Union was organizing and deciding to organize with regard to the monetary system of the EU. And England was deciding whether they wanted to join in with the EU and forego the English pound. And looking back, I think that that was a very smart choice because they're not necessarily being brought down economically like the rest of the continent is. There is this interesting issue of Britain could have gone in with the euro years ago, and uh, there was some discussion, and you may have and you may not have, but right now, does anybody wish they were in the euro, Roy? No. Oh, I don't think so at all. No. Um, successive governments <laughs> since have basically said that if ever the situation warranted it and economically everything was correct, then they would consider joining the euro. But I think with the conservative government we've got at the moment, it's highly unlikely in the next few years. It'll never happen. Britain will never join the euro now. David emails us from Clovis, California, and he writes, it appears the currency of choice is still the pound in the United Kingdom. When will the EU finally pressure them to get in step and convert measures to metric and the currency to the euro? Uh, does the EU have any any leverage over Britain? We are metric. Have you gone metric? Yeah, we are metric. There are 27 members of the European Union, of whom 10 do not use the euro. Britain, for some reason, is held up as the, as the guiding light of non-euro. But you're uses. not alone in that. We're not alone. And the in- original intention was to go into the euro, but as I say, it was an American investor who, who cut it down. But I can foresee it happening, but not in the immediate future. Not in the immediate future. Not now. In my uh, preparation for this interview, I was reading about something that just reminded me Americans might have a tough time relating to the political challenges you're dealing with within the United Kingdom. Somebody was writing about the West Lothian question. Ah, That's a very good question. Who can explain the Can we have Scotland explain the West Lothian question? The West Lothian question was brought up by Tam Diel, who was a, a Labour member of Parliament. And it's about Scottish... We still send members of Parliament to the Parliament in the Westminster. Mm-hmm. In London. In London. And the Scottish MPs can vote on solo English issues... Right. 
but the English MPs can't vote on anything in Scotland. For example, the, the big one was about education. Tony Blair's government wanted to put tuition fees... It was the tuition fees... Yes, and the uni- t- university, university tuition, 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 tuition fees. fees. There was a majority of Labour in the Scottish Parliament and in the English Parliament. So he got all his buddies to vote along with him against a lot of the wishes of the English members. So in other words... So it's not democratic. So in other words, assuming you're you're represented by your parliamentarians, Anne in Scotland has more impact on Roy's children's education exactly. in the south of England than Roy has on your children's and in education. education in Scotland. And in fact, an agreement was made. The way that Tony Blair got the Scottish MPs to vote for the introduction of university fees for English students was by promising that there would be no university fees in Scotland. In Scotland, and there aren't any. Okay, so that's got to go hand in hand with devolution then. If you're going to have devolution, you have to have devolution. That's right. Now, I'm fascinated by how all over Europe, politics vents itself in the soccer stadium. Mm. Mm. Talk to me about relations between the great states of the United Kingdom when it comes to soccer. I'll give you a quick... I mean, I come from Wales, uh, just under three million people, and I walked into a, a cafe in Hamburg oh, 15, 20 years ago. And she said, and where are you from? And I say, I'm from Wales. And she looked at me and said, ah, yes, we know you. We played football against us. You beat us, didn't you? Wales actually beat Germany. Wales did. Wales did. So when Wales is winning, you're Welsh. Yeah, but the the thing is, we can have conversations. I can go from little Wales into big Germany, and they'll know where I come from because of football. Because of football. Football is a great unifier. But it also is very, very tribal. And there is no greater rivalry than between the two larger teams in the United Kingdom, Scotland and England. England. The old enemy. Scotland, the old enemy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And to a Scotsman, beating England would be the ultimate joy. Isn't they would never support. I was actually horrified that when England won, won the World Cup in Germany in, what was it, 1966, Scotland was supporting Germany. Because of the rivalry. So Scotland would support, if Scotland's out of the running and England is still in the running, Scotland will support Germany Germany. or whatever. Whereas England probably would support us. That was always the argument. Yes, yes. But but I was quite horrified when I realized that. So there's that, let's get back at them from the underdogs. Yes. But you know, there's that lovely passage in the film Train Spotting, isn't there? Ewan McGregor standing in the marsh in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely true. Scotland is a great country full of great people and great institutions. These things... This exploitation, this invasion, that happened centuries ago. Scotland is a big enough country with great enough people to forget that. To measure yourself in terms of your neighbours to the south is pathetic. <laughs> well, it's the old chip on the shoulder. It is. Uh, Scots have always yeah. had a chip on the shoulder because we were the junior partners. We've had a pretty but unfortunate it... history when it comes to the last battle yeah. spot on British yeah. soil and so on. Before the, uh, we're done with our time, I do want to talk about the state of the royalty in Britain. What's the impact of the wedding with William and Kate? And what do the Scots think of the Queen? And is it worth all the money? And is the pageantry it a good is. thing? And so on. I get asked this quite a lot by Americans. And royalty is not national or geographically placed. It's more generationally, I would say. My parents' generation, my kids couldn't care less about going to Britannia or, you know, seeing the royal things. But in Scotland, it, it's really based on generations. So you're referring to the, the Queen's boat the Queen's that's uh, moored boat, up. Yes. And, and I love that site, yeah. to go to the Britannia, the Queen's great. yacht. Robin's on the phone in Buffalo with some thoughts on the royalty. Robin, thanks for your uh, call from New York. Oh, thank you, Rick. I have been thinking a lot. You know, Queen Elizabeth is celebrating 60 years on the throne this year, and she's 85. My question for you is simply, what do you think the future of royalty should be? Do you think that if Prince Charles becomes king and Camilla becomes queen, that that's going to really destroy the royal family? Do you think that the crown should go from Queen Elizabeth right on to William and Catherine and bypass Charles? Or do you think that when the current queen's reign ends, royalty should end too? Well, this is interesting. We've got three people from three different nations there in, in Great Britain. And let's hear what your thoughts are just briefly on that. Martin from Wales. Right. What is the future of royalty? Will the royal family come to an end when this queen's reign? Should it pass over Charles and all the rest of it? And it's, it's sort of no to all those. I want to point out to you something that we forget. We in Britain 
are the great republicans. We are the great questioners of the role of our royal family. In 1649, we cut off our king's head. In 1688, we kicked out another king that we didn't like. Before France thought of it, before the United yeah. States thought about it, we were chopping off monarchs' heads. And after a while, we thought, we're going to keep our monarchy. And, you know, to get rid of a monarch, you have to have a mechanism. It is a big social upheaval. And currently, Her Majesty the Queen is doing a cracking job. She is a shaker of hands with no power. She is relatively cheap to keep compared to other politicians. And there is no mechanism, there is no impetus, there is no cataclysm that will ever force us to get rid of the royal family in the foreseeable future. Now, the fragmentation of the United Kingdom might bring something about. But you have royalty on your terms, you're saying, basically. Absolutely. Apolitical. And Doig from Scotland, what's your take on all of this? I agree with Martin. I think that the Queen drives a lot of money into the UK from the pageantry, etc. And when she goes on her overseas visits, it's much easier for people to go in and do business after a royal visit. And when they complain about the Queen and how much it costs, Hmm. it's a tiny bit compared with what she actually brings into the country. She's got no power I remember I lived in Australia for, for eight years and I came back. I, I did kind of object to being a, a, a subject. I thought, <laughs> I want to be a citizen. But I actually am a citizen because the Queen has no political power. Mm. So I don't think she does any harm at all. And with William and uh, Kate, they're sort of like celebrities and the younger people now are more interested. It does bring it to, to light yeah. in the younger generation. Yeah. Roy, what's your take on all of this? Well, I, I agree with the other two. The Queen has no political power, but she has a constitutional role. And I think what's likely to happen is that it will fade away. I don't think there is any deep, other than amongst a small minority of Republicans, demand for the removal of the monarchy. And I think eventually it will just fade away. It might last another few generations. It'll Const- get less and less consequential. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the the role that the, the monarch will play will diminish as time goes on until he just fades. One thing I'm struck by is how all of our guests here, Welsh, Scottish, mm-hmm. and English, she's oh, all okay. your queen. She's not England's queen. She's Britain's queen, and you're all part of Britain, your family. And that's, that's <laughs> why I say that the disintegration of Great Britain could possibly affect her role. If all of you had a crystal ball and you looked 50 years down the road... Will Great Britain still be the same Great Britain we know today? Anne from Scotland. Actually, I do. I think so. I think Scotland may gain more power, but I think it probably will be. Sticking with London. Mm -hmm. Martin in Wales. I agree with Anne. I think devolution is going to have to work better. I think there'll be more power to the regions, and I think it will stay with the royal family at the top. Roy, from England, considering North Ireland also, what's your prediction? Well, I, I think there'll be something that we'll call the United Kingdom. But remember, we're going through transition, um, it's dynamic, but things are always dynamic. There's always continual change. The Britain we have today was not the Britain of 200 years ago, and it'll be a different Britain in 50 years. But it will still remain. One way or another, it's a situation in flux. And Martin Delandovitz from Wales, Anne Doig from Scotland, and Roy Nichols from England, thank you very much for helping us straighten all that out in our minds on this side of the Atlantic. Lovely. Thank you, Rick. Thank Thank you for the chance. Thank you. Share your thoughts about the future of the UK on our radio message board. You can leave a comment on the topics we discuss in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Up next, it's a different angle on living inside the European Union. We'll find out what it's like to uproot yourself and move to a different country within a borderless EU. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Olá, sou Cristina Duarte, sou de Lisboa e viajo com Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Cristina Duarte. I'm from Lisbon and I travel with Rick Steves. Olá, sou Cristina Duarte, sou portuguesa e viajo com Rick Steves. The European Union has made it a lot easier in recent years for its residents to relocate and reinvent themselves in another member country of the EU. Whatever the reasons you may have for leaving home to plant roots elsewhere, if you're a European resident, you now have an abundance of choices. Europeans can relocate to any one of the member nations of the EU. Joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us their own stories of making a new home outside their home countries are Tricia Brady and Susanna Perrucchini. Tricia comes from Scotland, and now she lives in a restored farmhouse in rural Italy. She considers the region of La Marque her home now. 
and Susanna was raised in the northeast of Italy, but has relocated to Madrid. Susanna and Tricia, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you very it's much. nice to be here. You're both Europeans, and I've noticed this trend. Europeans, it's almost unlikely these days to find a European who's living where they were raised. In the old days, that was a big thing. You stayed in your community. How has the European Union made it easier for Europeans to be raised in one country and eventually settle in another? Tricia? Well, you have a choice, which is nice. So I work in Italy. I work for an American company, and I'm paid in Britain. So I can choose where I pay my taxes. And so I choose to get away from the bureaucracy of Italy and I pay my taxes in Britain. Oh, that's interesting. So you're enjoying the best of both worlds. You're living in Italy, but trying to avoid the bureaucracy of Italy. So you're a taxpayer in Britain. Yeah. Susanna, how about you? How has the European Union enabled you to uh, decide you want to live in Spain instead of Italy? Well, you know, I think not only for me, I didn't go to university, but many of my friends, they had the, the possibility to after or in between of finishing the university to go and spend, let's say, three months, six months, nine months abroad in one of the many European countries. And we had this program that I think is still on, which is called Erasmus. You might be familiar with that. Right. So it was subsidized by the government, well, actually by the, uh, the European community. And many of my friends had that experience. It doesn't mean that many of them, all of them, ended up living in that country, whatever it was, but at least they improved the language or they decided to try again and have more possibilities job-wise. Or to just simply better understand the other communities in the European Union. Absolutely. So the European government, even in tough economic times, continues to fund young people to study in foreign countries. This is this Erasmus program. Why did you decide to change from Italy to Spain? Well, you know, for me, the weather has always been very important. And everybody knows that we're pretty lucky in Italy because we have nice weather. Generally speaking, we have mild winters. And uh, um, several of my good friends, they were living or they lived a chunk of their times in UK or in Scotland, which I love. But, you know, weather-wise, it was terrible. So I've been there several times. And I said, no way. I mean, it must be closer to my heart. And also, I would become depressed, honestly. So I decided to go to Spain. So you you really wanted to leave Italy, but you didn't want to leave the weather? Nope. So you went to Spain. How is Spain better than Italy for you? Well, um, we're getting to the core of this interview. I think that for me it's better because, you know, whatever happens in Spain, they make lots of mistakes. Politicians are not perfect. Bureaucracy is pretty tough, but not as tough as the Italian one. Um, uh, so you're a refugee from Italian bureaucracy. Yes, I am. <laughs> you know, I was just filming there, and I can understand that. I, I went into a museum, and uh, before they gave me permission, I went downstairs and had to sign a bunch of papers. They had a three-ring notebook with all of their We're on Strike posters, and they had like eight different kinds of strike, but they just had them saved for next time they were going on strike. They were in a three-ring binder, and they just roll their eyes every time they have to deal with their own bureaucracy. I can understand how that might be a frustration, yes. in spite of all the beautiful things in Italy. Tricia. You moved from Scotland to Italy. You're moving into the storm. Why did you do that? Well, I'm half Italian, mm-hmm. and my life just kind of took me that way, and I found a ruin, and I restored it, and I love the quality of life in Italy. It's a different quality of life than I had in England or in Scotland. The bureaucracy is the most frustrating thing living mm-hmm. in Italy, I have to say. But still the quality of life yes. trumps and that the for weather. You. And, and the, the part weather. of Italy where I live, which is Le Marche, is so sunny. It's like sunny Scotland. Sunny. It's similar countryside. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Beautiful. When you look at all of this movement in Europe, both of you, do you see any trends from where are people wanting to go, where are people wanting to leave? Mm. And why? At the moment People are leaving in their droves because of the situation, the crisis financially. Leaving where? Uh, All of the European, Spain and France and Italy are the three main sort of holiday places for other Europeans to have holiday homes. Right. And the market, you just look on the internet, there's so much for sale. So they went down there because they're these Mediterranean paradises, but now the economy is worse in the Mediterranean and the housing market is depressed because nobody wants to buy these houses. Well, they have homes perhaps in the north with mortgages. Right. And they've bought these places often with another mortgage and suddenly with this situation financially in the world, they're just can't afford. Is there a movement to the north because of the economic crisis? That's what I what I would think. For example, always talking to friends, which of course is not an international reference, but I would say that 
most of the people I know with degrees and even PhDs, they tend to go to UK or to Finland, Sweden, those kind of countries. Okay, where the economy might be more um, promising from an employment point of yes, view? Yes, I mean, what do you Tough do? Tough to get a job in Spain or exactly. Greece. Exactly, well, now. in Spain especially, you know, that we have the right. highest rate in Europe of unemployment. Susanna, you're living as a former Italian in Spain. Tricia, you're living as a Scottish woman in Italy. Do you find that that expats like yourself are living with other expats and that's your social community? Or are most of your friends natives from the country you've adopted? I think it's inevitable that you gravitate towards people who are speaking your own language because it's not your mother tongue. And I live in rural Italy where the people are all farmers and they wouldn't be my social mix of people if I were in Scotland. So you find English-speaking people even in rural Italy to hang out with? Oh, yes. And Susanna? Well, for me, uh, maybe because we're talking about Spain and we're talking about the capital and we're talking about Madrid, so big city, very international, cosmopolitan. You know that, Rick, because you've been there several times. For me, it's the other way around. And plus, I was never attracted by my own people. I mean... Okay, so you you are embracing the chance to leave your Italian friends behind and get in with the Spaniards. No, not exactly. You know, you know, Rick, I have such good friends, Italian friends, that they live abroad. They will be always there. But I don't need to have my little Italy around Madrid. I don't need it. I know uh, Brazilian people, uh, Spanish, American people, and... Maybe it was a coincidence, but none of my friends in in Madrid is Italian. None of them. Okay. What kind of bureaucratic headaches are there when you move, say, from Italy to Spain? Well, I have to say that somehow the European community is something like a a, a very young boy or very young girl. So very new. Everything is new, but things somehow they're improving. So for me, it was very easy because the only thing that I have to do um, being a European citizen is to say to my country, you know, I'm not living here anymore. And to, in order to be able to get a, a resident permit in Spain, you just have to bring your contract. You know, you, I signed a contract for a flat because I don't own a flat where I live in. And you, you bring it in the Registro Civil and they give you a paper. And with that paper, you can claim any kind of document. So governments are happy that people are moving around and it's a healthy I, thing? I don't know if, if they're happy, but they are providing services. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about living as a borderless European, and we're joined by Susanna Perrucchini, an Italian who's decided to live in Madrid, and Tricia Brady, who's a Scottish woman who's decided to live in Italy. Tricia, as you moved down to Italy, you must have had some romantic imaginations of what would happen and to be living there. Has it panned out the way you hoped, or or were you disappointed? No, I I love living in Italy. Um, The one thing that I find a problem, and it's within my job as a tour guide, And that is that since the European Union, things have become more difficult for me working in Europe than than easier. Like I have to have a certificate from the town hall somewhere in Cambridge in England to say that I am permitted to be in Europe working, which is ridiculous when, on the other hand, I carry around a health card that covers me for the whole of Europe. And we are supposed to be Europeans after all. So that's a frustration. So there's quite a lot of settling in as Europe uh, figures out, is it you know, a bunch of individual countries or, or one big free trade zone and one big economic union? Absolutely. Susanna, when you think of Europe and how Europe is dealing with the challenges confronting it, because you've, you've both lived in different countries and you've got a lot of friends that are quite international, is it a feeling of all for one and one for all, or is it every country for themselves? And, and let's just... Uh, somehow manage on our own and to heck with the rest of them. Well, you know, being on your own is exactly the opposite idea that the European community has. So it would be, for me, going backward instead of going forward. So I, despite everything, despite the crisis, despite everything else, I truly believe this is a good idea. So don't get me wrong. I know that now we are 27, if I'm not wrong, countries. So many people, they're starting to say to me, oh, it would be nice to cut off those poor countries. You know, let's face it, Italy is not a poor country, but somehow we're doing so badly. And Spain just uh, joined the European community in 1986. They were doing so well. And all of a sudden, boom, they went into the pit. So I truly believe that we have to hang on it because it's good, because our sons can have benefits, more benefits. 
then bad things from the European community, but we have to be patient and hold on to it. So future generations, in your assessment, it's it's best if Europe sticks together and helps the, the weaker countries and make a strong future for all together. That's what I really, truly believe. And uh, I want to give also a little message of being positive and optimism because we really need to believe that Europe was not a failure. I'd like to close just with this whole sort of psychological who am I idea about <laughs> living in Europe. Uh, Tricia, you're Scottish, you're Italian, you're living with a bunch of Italian uh, rural communities, small-town Italian people and so on. What is your and, and what are your neighbors' outlooks? Are you uh, people from the Marquet? Are you Italians? Are you Europeans? How do you identify yourself when you're moving all over the place like this? I've always felt like a European. I've never really, I'm not for Scottish nationalism. I've, I've got this Scottish accent, deep accent, but I have never, ever been for it. I, and when you go into the market and you're waiting in line for uh, the produce with people who live on farms around you who have never been out of Italy, how do they see themselves? Um, I think they don't actually see themselves any particular way because they haven't traveled, so they don't have that perspective. So they would be a little more regional. Yes, and they laugh. You know, when I say I'm off to Naples tomorrow, they burst out laughing and say, Naples tomorrow. <laughs> Very nice, you know. They probably haven't it's been there once in They haven't lifetime. been to the local village. Susanna, how do you see yourself? Uh, well, you know, Rick, it's important to keep in mind that no matter how far I will go, and that's something that I started to think about it many years ago, no matter how many years I, I can spend in a country, can be Spain, can be Finland, I will always be Italian. And it's something that it's the core of you. Mm -hmm. So it's like you. I mean, you grew up in this little town, Edmonds, you can be all over, but you will be the old Rick, the, the, the same person. So I'm just growing as a person. I'm trying to embrace more things, but I will be Italian till I die, if I like it or not. So I really feel more than European. I feel myself and very comfortable. I speak very a very good Spanish, which helps because I like to get to understand people and that it's number one thing that you want to do and you have to do once you move to a foreign country otherwise you are totally isolated and that's one of the the other reason that I didn't want to become friends to Italian because come on I, I can go to Italy two hours flight and my friends are there so so I become more Italian every time that I spend more time in any foreign country but at the same time I embrace things from other countries I love ham jamon I, I can cook croquetas but I'm still and always be Italian. Very interesting. Susanna Perrucchini, Trisha Brady, what a wonderful time of opportunity you live in to be in Europe, to be able to be free to, to call home any country you like and to still be whatever you like, Scottish, European, Italian, Spanish. Thanks a lot and best wishes. Thank you very Thank much. Bye-bye. <laughs> The creative tension between our short-term travels and our desire to be at home provides fodder for some interesting thoughts from bicycle adventurer Willie Weir. When he was on an extended cycling trip in Africa, Willie recognized that his competing desires to keep on traveling and to get back home are sort of like having a split personality. As he puts it, like Dr. Travel and Mr. Home. Zimbabwe. 26 kilometers. I looked up at that sign and an internal struggle began. I have a split personality, like that of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But in my life, they go under the names of Dr. Travel and Mr. Home. Dr. Travel loves everything about the road. Strange foods, moonlit campsites, dust and sweat, dog-eared maps leading to who knows where, the aching muscles, the uncertainty, the challenge. New cultures, new friends, new experiences. Mr. Home longs for the familiar. Lattes at the corner cafe, baseball games, check in the mailbox. Where shall we eat? I know where. The firm mattress, the certainty, the routine. Old favorites, old friends, old times. Dr. Travel wanted to go on, forget the expense, follow the baobab trees into Zim, and cycle clear up to Cairo. What did it matter that he had bookings to speak at schools in the fall? They'd understand. Mr. Home was ready to turn around to cycle to Johannesburg and fly back to the States in time for his nephew's birthday. 
His clothes were wearing thin, and his funds were running out. I sat by the side of the road and ate an apple, with some cheese, while my two personalities duked it out. By the time I threw the core out into the bushveld, Mr. Home had won. This time. Turning my bicycle around, I began to pedal at Joburg. I reflected on 4,000 miles of cycling in South Africa. In my handlebar bag was a book filled with addresses of people I'd met along the way. Folks who had fed me and housed me, given me directions, suggestions, and all but adopted me into their families. South Africa had long ceased to be that place of apartheid or the country often mentioned on the news. It was now a part of me. My mind pedaled back across mountains, through villages, and along gravel roads, back to a town named Clan William in the Cape, where I met Theo and Esme in the town park. They shared their picnic lunch with me, and also part of their lives. They were six and eight years old when uniformed men came and informed their families that their neighborhood had been declared a whites-only area. Their families were given three months to move. They talked of anger and shame and, and of their lifelong struggle for equality. When we got up to leave, Theo said, You must understand, Willie. Years ago, we could not have sat with you in this park. It was for whites only. But this was the new South Africa, and a white man and a colored man embraced in the park. And for the first time in my life, I truly understood the meaning of freedom. As my flight takes off from Johannesburg on its way back to the United States, Mr. Holm is ecstatic and will soon be back in familiar surroundings. Maybe my travel days are numbered. Maybe it's time to settle down, get a job with stability, and a pension plan. Who am I trying to kid? Dr. Travel is presently gazing at the world map in the in-flight magazine, planning, dreaming. It's only a matter of time. Well, isn't it nice that we can dream of all the places we can see? Fly over oceans wide, do all the things we never tried. Isn't it strange how you can go back to a home? Like you were there before A place you've been searching for Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.